Williams deals. That one's driven deep to right center field. There it goes. See ya. A three-run walk-off home run for Robinson Cano. And the Yankees win it 5-2. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 34 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm joined by my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. Or if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call, 631-820-7377. There's no other place to start besides the hot topic happening right now. Almost like a hat tip on David Ortiz's birthday to the man himself. Robinson Cano was popped for a second time with PEDs. This time he caught a 162-game suspension. The first is 80 games. The second is 162 games. So that's where we're at right now. He also forfeits his $24 million in salary. And you want to say, obviously, that's a bad thing, forfeiting salary like that, of course. But guys like Cano, just like when A-Rod had to forfeit his salary, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like $24 million doesn't hurt them. But does it hurt them? Not as much as it would hurt you or me losing $24 million. <laughs> the news did hurt me, and it's not even my money. I was like, ooh, well, yeah, 24, 20, 24 million. million in emotional damages. Well, it has been funny, though, and haha funny, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> is the reaction to this whole situation from various people. Yeah. Rosenthal, Ken Rosenthal of the athletic fame, he, not even, he was famous way before that, but so whatever. Say, really? <laughs> he was calling Cano a drug cheat, like in the headline of an article or something I saw on Twitter and whatever. He cheated, I get it. But then today, this is Thursday, so that was yesterday on Wednesday. Today, Rosenthal tweets a story about what's his face, Alex Cora of the Red Sox, you know, who was suspended yeah, this yeah. year. Blah, blah. Just Red got Sox his hired. job back. Exactly. And it was a total like redemption story. It was from like the angle of like, you know, three years ago when he first came to Fenway, this is what the day was like now. And it was a total like hero story. Like he was knocked down, now he's back up. And it's like, okay, so are, we've decided that we are arbitrarily deciding which kind of cheating is okay and which isn't. Yeah, yeah, you notice it, it's drug cheat Robinson Cano and it's just Alex Cora. Why isn't it like cheat, cheat Alex Cora or like trash, trash can cheat Alex Cora? Like, <laughs> Trash can. I can't even say it. Human trash can and cheater, Alex Cora. <laughs> but seriously, though, and obviously that's like the arbitrary line between different forms of cheating. But we even have the lines drawn within PED use. We have some guys that we don't care and we pretend like it was a, a speed bump in their career or, what, or it didn't even exist. And then we have other guys where it's the only thing that gets spoken of when we talk about them or their legacy. Well, you know, I mean, you want to talk about reactions. I'm, I'm still getting used to this new Mets regime because my very, very initial reaction was like, ah, fuck. Immediately I saw Mets in the headline, PEDs, like, oh, God damn it. Here we go again. But then I had a second to think about it. And I'm like, A, this reflects poorly on the previous regime. This really is not on anybody current's hands. And aside from that, like, am I really upset that Cano is not going to be on second? No. We talked like in the last couple of weeks. I think I even said that there was like a log jam in the infield. This certainly helps clear that up, clears up $24 million. Like overall, 
I almost said no disrespect to Cano, but you know what? Fuck that guy. Like, no, we're, this is this is a good thing for the Mets overall. So I had a bit of a, a roller coaster with that. But to your point, like, yeah, the, the pearl clutching and the hand wringing over, the, it's A, who's surprised, right? He did this in 2018. I mean, well, I, like he only did it in 2018. Clearly he's been doing it longer than that. But he got busted, what, two years ago now. So like the, the surprise and the shock, it's like that fucking spare me, man. Like... Are you really that surprised? And not for nothing, it's like, he just did this to himself. He tanked his career. Like, you know what? I'm going to be all like offended for him. Like, nah, fuck that, man. He fucked up. He got caught. And the Mets are in a better position for it. That's my reaction. And it's always really interesting because obviously, like you said, you can't assume that, oh, this is the only, this is only the second time he's used as opposed to the first time he got caught, which of course all fans try to play that game when they want to like excuse players who have used, I've heard that with Pettit, like he just used that one time and, and he used it to recover. It's like, first of all, they all fucking use it to recover. That's the point. Second of all, I got a bridge to sell you. If you think that the one time these guys get caught, that's the one time they've used it. And people will always be like, he, they admitted it. He That's why people don't mind. It's like he admitted it after he was named in the Mitchell report. <laughs> so is that really admitting it? Yeah, yeah, he, really, he he was feeling guilty and he came forward. And we're going to give him credit for that, please. So the assumption is always that, you know, they're using it to make money and that's what they do. And that's, there's a lot to be said for that, right? That obviously there's a lot of big money at stake. So a lot of guys, it's worth it to them to risk it all. Use PEDs because, hey, you get that one payday, you just you play towards free agency and look at what happened for, with Cano. He signed 10-year, $240 million. Right. Well, I mean, and that was the other part of the reaction was like, oh, okay, 2020 kind of makes sense now. You know, he was great this past season after being dog shit in 2019. So, right. I mean, the man is like 38, 39 years old. Yeah, he's up there for a ball player. So, it's really interesting to think about. And it really speaks to because, you know, you always have the fans that are like, oh, after they sign the contract, they give up or they don't care anymore. And I'm not implying that. PED use is a direct sign that a player cares. Obviously, there's way more to it than that. But I do feel that it is an interesting thing to think about the fact that someone like Cano, who is in his contract, he signed it seven years ago, so he's not looking for another contract. He's not playing towards anything else, is still using PEDs despite the fact that he already made the money. He's, so it's like even now, these guys aren't giving up. But like the other thing is morals, ethics, that stuff aside, I don't see in what way taking PEDs could possibly show that you don't care. You want to say that it's misguided. You want to say that it's wrong. Okay, I'm not arguing any of that, but I don't see any scenario in which you don't care on some level, whether it's for the team, whether it's personal and more selfish, whatever. That's not for us to discern. But, you know, right or wrong aside... Clearly, they care. They're trying to perform by taking these things, right? They're not doing it for nothing. They're not doing it just for shits. And also, doesn't this sort of appease the fans that hate long deals like this? Because the, the argument always is fans will hate a long deal for an elite player because the back end is the player-friendly aspect of the deal, right? You're paying for their peak years, and it's worth it to just say, you know what, we're going to fucking pay this guy until he's 40 and let him retire because his peak is going to be so good. Cano essentially said, hey, I'm not going to have my downfall. I'm going to go out right on top. And <laughs> that kind of blew up on him. But still, doesn't that kind of, don't fans want that? It's like, I feel like it's, and I'm not saying that that 
feeling has driven this decision by Cano. All I'm saying is that fans put players a lot of times in a lose-lose situation where they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. If Cano fucking falls off and stops producing at the age of 35 and then the last five or six years of his contract are dog shit, people then just talk about how horrible the contract is, blah, 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 blah. So then he says, you know what? Let me just take some PEDs. Let me ramp it up a little bit. And now people are like, you know what? You're an asshole for taking PEDs. So really, PEDs. He, he did it for us. You're saying that Robbie Cano died for our sins. <laughs> yes. I wasn't saying that in so many words, but you know what? <laughs> now I am. Well, let me, let me get your take on this because I, I kind of get a kick out of people saying that like this was the death knell for his Hall of Fame chances. It's like, wouldn't the first one be? Like if we're talking about like Ortiz only got caught once, right? Like a lot of these guys... One was enough. So while the hand ringing, it's like, oh, well, well, now he's done. It's like, you weren't going to vote for him after the first one. Get the fuck out of here. Exactly. And I think that it, it has a lot to do with people sort of lying to themselves and saying, like we said before, that this the one time they, they made one mistake and they got caught this one time as if it's not a pattern of behavior that they've probably been engaging in for a long time. Now that, that removes that doubt for fans, I guess, and writers that it's like, I can't pretend that he only did it this one day and then had a piss test a day later. You know what I mean? Right. And it's not a perfect comparison because what I'm about to talk about is something actually like wrong and evil. But like, it's like the guys that with the domestic violence stuff, you know, it's like the fans who jump on them. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's one time you lost a step. That's not how that works. That's a pattern. When you get caught doing something, it's because you're doing it a lot. You know, so, I mean, I'd, I'd much rather someone get caught doing steroids than than beating on somebody, first of all. But I mean, it's just because like that's the information that we're given as fans, like these isolated incidents. It's amazing the the mental gymnastics that people will go through. Be like, oh, it's just that one time. It was one mistake. That's never how this works. Never, never, never. And the goalposts always get shifted because as I would imagine everyone listening is aware I don't give a shit about PED use. I obviously don't <laughs> condone it as far as a health aspect. I mean, I'm not a fucking health ex expert, but it doesn't take an expert to know that they're not that good for you, which is why they're illegal in baseball and in like US law, I'm pretty sure. So with that being said, the other day on Ortiz's birthday, which was the same day that Robinson Cano got popped, but just saying, the universe works in mysterious ways, everybody. <laughs> of course, Ortiz has been celebrated. He's, he's a, a lovable figure. He was someone that MLB dug their claws into during his playing days because they saw how likable he was, not just in Boston, but in all across all fandoms. He had exactly as many failed PED tests as A-Rod. And if we want to get technical... Neither of them failed because it wasn't a test like that. It was, it was just, just leaked, right? Yeah. First of all, the results were leaked. And it's because it, it was a test that after Congress stuck their nose into MLB's business, when they realized that PEDs were probably being a problem, they did a test just to see what percentage of the league were using. A-Rod and Big Poppy were two of like, it was like 120 players or something like that which is obviously a pretty large percentage because there's only like 750 players, right. I think, on rosters. Oh. So, Also, have you heard Big Poppy's take on why his results were leaked? It's because he, th he he claims that the New York Times thought that there was too many Yankees involved in this, so they wanted to throw a red sock in there just to like mix it up a little bit, and they thought their readers might like that better somehow. 
Uh, it's a bit, a bit of a sketchy take. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the last we heard, he was going to look into it or something like that, too. Well, not alone I'm that. I'm looking like, into this. Is that him, like, admitting, like, well, I'm not a big enough star to just merit it on my own. So it, it's got to be tied into the Yankees, just like everything else in my career. And people have taken that and ran with it because I've honestly had someone on Twitter say that to me. That really? it was, yeah, people were seriously like, oh, yeah, like, like it's an unbiased source, the New York Times. And it's like, uh... If we're talking about politics, sure, it leans left, but we're talking about, are you implying that New York publications are biased towards New York sports? All they, they make a living absolutely skewering New York athletes and teams. That's how they fucking sell papers. I was going to say, didn't the New York Post sports section endorse Trump this past cycle? I'm kidding. Obviously, they didn't. <laughs> Wait, they didn't? The sports section didn't. Oh, but the sports I, section. I, I'm positive the editorial staff didn't, but I'm saying the sports section didn't. So on his birthday, MLB shared that post. I then retweeted it, just adding that line that he also had the PED positive test. I didn't say a thing about A-Rod. I didn't say a thing negative. It was just that point. My mentions get flooded with people, of course, immediately defensive and then doing the old thing, telling me what my bio says, like, oh, okay, A-Rod historian. And it's like, first of all, you're making my point for me. Because my point was A-Rod, all these other players, when we talk about PEDs, when we think about PEDs, they're the first ones that come to mind. And Or even when you talk about their careers, that's the first thing that gets mentioned. Ortiz, on the other hand, I had people telling me that I was being disrespectful to the man on his birthday for bringing it up. <laughs> that's hysterical. Especially when you consider that I it was not an opinion-based thing. I wasn't like, fuck this PED or anything like that. I literally just said, one time PED positive test. People were livid. And that's the point. Why? Why are we arbitrarily deciding? Can people finally just admit well, that that's what they're doing? I don't think it's arbitrary, though. And I think that you touched on it earlier. It comes down to marketability. I think a lot of these fans get the wool pulled over their eyes. They buy into these narratives that the league pushes. And I mean, hey, man, you know, we're all here because we love baseball. How can you not be romantic about baseball? Yes to all of that. But a lot of fans, I think, are a little willfully ignorant of the fact that it's almost, you know what, I'm not even going to say almost, it's just as much a business, right? So if you don't see the connection with the dollar signs, I don't know what to tell you. Ortiz is a big fucking teddy bear that is marketable as hell. Bonds is surly. A-Rod is controversial. So of course they're going to lean into Ortiz because it's convenient to them. This kind of argument makes them more money. You know what I'm saying? They get more traction. They get more views. They're getting paid and all this shit with advertisements. It's good for business. That's what it comes down to for me. It's like, you know, why are we picking and choosing? Because Ortiz has built up this whole thing of being, you know, big and cuddly and harmless. And the other guys haven't, you know? And in some ways, and I can't believe I'm about to support A-Rod here, but in some ways, good for guys like A-Rod and Bonds, you know, just saying like, fuck it. Just kind of being themselves, not feeling the need. I'm not saying there's necessarily like a suck up aspect to Ortiz, but I also think that it's fair to say that there's some calculus there as far as saving whatever career he's going to wind up having, you know, broadcasting and whatnot after his playing career. How are you going to salvage that? You know, and that's through his personality. That's, you know, through through being a lovable guy that, like you said, that's not the first thing we talk about like it is with A-Rod, like it is with Bonds. And to be fair, a big issue with A-Rod throughout his career is that he did care what people thought. Yeah. He cared too much and he tried to act like he didn't care. And then he retired. He was humbled 
by what went down in his career and basically leaving with his tail between his legs. He grew up a little bit, realized it, and has now become likable. Bonds always fucking hated the media and didn't give a shit. But I think that was all by design, too. That, to be fair, and especially because Ortiz was not like Bonds and A-Rod in the sense that he was a fucking nobody. He was on the Twins before he went to the Red Sox, and he was not good. And then he became good, you know? Right. Maybe he matured a little bit. Maybe he had a little help maturing physically to make himself good. I'm not going to say that's neither here nor there. It's literally the crux of the entire episode. But <laughs> It's very much I mean. here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with the pressure of like being like the number one guy, which Bonds was coming into the league, A-Rod was coming into the league, I shouldn't speak for Bonds because I didn't. I was too young when he first came up in the league, so I can't pretend to know what he was like or what how MLB marketed him or not didn't market him. As far as A-Rod is concerned, MLB sort of treated him like a bad guy. That was sort of how you felt, and maybe it didn't help that he was on the team with Griffey, but even from the start, he was not built up. And as we know, MLB is not good at marketing their stars. But A-Rod then became sort of unlikable. So it was set up perfectly by MLB because they were like, hey, we can hang this jerk out to dry, and it'll be like, oh, only the bad baseball men are A-Rod, Clemens, Bonds, and, you know, Sosa, McGuire, anyone else they didn't either use or the one time it was a mistake. But the other guys, they are the evil, like, you picture them, like, twirling their mustaches, like, ha, <laughs> <laughs> Like tying them to the railroad tracks. Um, I wonder, too, you think there's an aspect of, because you, you mentioned um, a lot of these guys coming up, you know, with that pressure on them of being the guy that Ortiz didn't have early on. Do you think that kind of plays a role, too, in that Ortiz was kind of allowed to get acclimated to the league as a nobody, and then suddenly he kind of comes up, and when that happens, it's less of a pressure thing. It's more of a feel-good story, like, hey, let's see how far this kid can go, you know, versus you got your A-Rods and your Bonds, everyone's expecting greatness right out of the gate. So it's almost, maybe there's like a subconscious level of, with Ortiz, like a level of forgiveness, because you could argue that he wouldn't have been as good without them versus like, you know, one of the common arguments with bonds is like, Oh, you didn't need them. Right. So maybe there's a little bit of resentment with guys like a rod and bonds when it's like, Hey, you were there. You didn't need to versus Ortiz. Maybe there's a little subconscious like, well, he needed to. I do think that there is something to that. And I also think that there was no pressure on Ortiz in the sense he was a nobody before he went to Boston and Boston had yet to win their World Series. They were still in right, know, the right, curse no of the Bambino. There either. So exactly. And the entire fan base and the league, it's like, hey, we're used to losing. So if we lose and you don't amount to anything, we're used to that. It's like, oh, look at Boston. Look at this Ortiz kid. Yeah. Right. And let's fucking call a spade a spade here. Boston winning their first title in 2004 since whatever it was, 1918, and then going on a run of winning a few in a row, not consecutively, but pretty close. That was a great storyline for Major League Baseball, oh, especially yeah. post-PED scandal season. Comes back to those dollar signs I talked about. Right. So was MLB really going to lean in to Ortiz and, and whoever else was using that this is good for baseball. People are really liking this. You know, the Yankees aren't winning. It's a, it's the antithesis of the Yankees, which is a great switch for Major League Baseball at the time. Good point. So 
the Red Sox sort of represented like everything that's good, which is fucking hilarious. <laughs> that's truly funny in retrospect. <laughs> and A-Rod, especially with the nail in his coffin, was ironically going to New York too, that it was like, okay, we all wanted to see this guy fail. Now we especially want to see him fail because he's not only Alex Rodriguez, but he's Alex Rodriguez with frosted tips in his hair and on the Yankees. No, that's a great point. You have the guy that you want, well, the narrative, the guy that you want to succeed on the team you want to succeed versus the guy you don't want to succeed on the team you don't want to succeed. So I think that all of that comes into play. And something, it's funny, Ortiz being a nobody kind of, when he had that failed test, quote unquote, it's sort of like that's a before and after. That's like a different Ortiz to people, I feel like. That that's, that Ortiz doesn't exist because it happened before he became who he was. So it's like people can stick their fingers in their ears and close their eyes and just be like, nope, didn't happen. It was a different guy. Whereas someone like A-Rod or Bonds, they were already in the thick of their career and they were already who they were. So people can't turn a blind eye to it, even though that's another arbitrary line that's drawn that PEDs only matter to people when the players are good and their entire, all of their success is attributed to PEDs or that's like the fallback. Like, well, we don't know what they'd be like without it. Even if they were really good pre-roids like Bonds, people still have that shadow of a doubt. Whereas there are plenty of players that took PEDs and didn't amount to shit and people don't care and they ignore the fact that it's like, all right, well, we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen because it doesn't fit our narrative that PEDs equal Hall of Fame player. And if I'm being honest with you, I don't think it's ever going to go away because human nature is we we like knowing things, right? And we like being certain about stuff. And the fact is, especially with that period of steroids, we are never going to know the extent of it. And there's a lot of things that point to it being widespread. Guys that have never come up in the conversation have probably done it that we have never, and maybe some will never get brought up. But at the end of the day, it just clashes with that. You know, I mean, part of this show is our opinions, right? And we, we have hard opinions that we believe in. And this is dealing with cold, hard facts that we're never going to know. And that's inherently frustrating to us as people. So that's why this conversation is never going to stop. And people aren't going to be willing to accept that, like, yeah, a lot of these guys were because there just happens to be no proof. And, and like we talked about earlier, you know, the guys that get popped once, it wasn't because they were doing it just that one week that they got tested. And I'm not even convinced that the only guys that get popped are the ones that we hear about. You know, MLB isn't like some, not that the government is known for their, their truth telling, but it's not like it's a government <laughs> agency and they have to release news about something. They right. can control their news cycle and what they release, I would imagine. So not to put on my tinfoil hat completely, but- well, Here goes. Yeah, I'm there sorry. is an element, <laughs> seriously though, there is an element of that. And speaking of tinfoil hats, a perfect segue for this conversation and, and the reason why it came up even before Cano's second PED suspension, the Hall of Fame ballots came out this week. So obviously the discussion is heavy on PEDs because we have Clemens and Bonds and Ramirez and all these guys that are up for election again. And this year is an interesting year because there's no one really new on the ballot that is like, oh, this guy's a surefire. Like last year we had Jeter and the year before we had Rivera. So this is now a year where it's like you have guys that are Hall of Very Good worthy, but no one that I don't even think will get in at any point. Maybe uh, Burley. That would even be a stretch. He would just get in for the perfect game. I don't, he's not the first ballot Hall of Famer. None of these guys are. It's a weak class. So that opens up the question, 
Does someone else get in that's been struggling to get in for a while now? The reason why I segued with the tinfoil hat is because I hope so. I hope that this gives Clemens more votes. I hope that Bonds gets more votes. Last year, they were both hovering around 60%. 75% is needed to get in. So every year, it's been kind of going up and up, even if only marginally. So hopefully this is a year they only have one year left. Their eligibility expires uh, in 2022. But then, of course, they have all the, you know, committees. committee and yeah. Right where it ends up being a committee of their peers at some point in time. So it'll probably be a committee full of guys who use PEDs on the low. So you're telling me there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. And I had the theory, while I hope that happens, this year, obviously, the ceremony got canceled up in Cooperstown, which, quick aside, anyone listening, if you have an opportunity to go to the induction ceremony, I highly, highly, highly suggest you do. A few years ago, 2016, me, John, and DJ Binchington went up for Griffey and Piazza's induction, and it was the fucking best weekend of all time. Fantastic. So there's no way they're skipping over Jeter, right? Because that's who was going to be inducted this year. I think Jeter and who? Bagwell? I don't think he was alone. I don't remember offhand, but yeah, it was someone else. Right. Unfortunately for whoever that other guy is, he's with Jeter, so it's Jeter and well, the that, other guy. <laughs> that sums it up perfectly. It's like, well, you know, the, the guy with Jeter, yeah. That's a, just like in a League of Their Own when they're like, you know, and this is Dottie and Dottie's sister. You ever hear dad introduce us to people? This is our daughter, Dottie. This is our other daughter, Dottie's sister. Right. <laughs> so I had a theory that it will be a perfect scapegoat to say all these guys, you know, PED use is why they didn't get voted in again, or, you know, Schilling and his uh, racist tirades that he goes on is why he didn't get in. It leaves open next summer the perfect substitute weekend for Jeter's induction, because if they have other inductees, they will then be combined, which is not the end of the world. They've had some classes where they had a lot of guys get inducted at the same time, but I feel like Jeter is the kind of guy that he shouldn't be inducted with fucking 10 other people. You know what I mean? Not that eight people are going to be voted in this year, but there is a part of me that it's like, will the writers sort of, you know, because they love their ceremonial, like tip of the hat to people and like the whole gentleman's club aspect where let's just be, let's let Jeter have his day. We're not going to vote anyone in. We're not going to tarnish Jeter by having Bonds be on the same stage as him. Spare me. You know what they should do if, and they won't, but if any of the writers had any balls, they should fill out their ballot exclusively with guys who have tested positive for PEDs at some point and get all those guys into Cooperstown the same weekend as Jeter. I would pay extra for that shit. I would absolutely go to that. I mean, it wouldn't take much to get me back up there, but I absolutely would. And the BBW, I can't even say the BBWAA, it's such an awkward initialism to say because it doesn't even have an acronym i don't think they like us talking about them in the first place i think that's on purpose they're like listen we have to name this club let's just make it as wordy as possible (laughs) they have like a little alarm that goes off in bbwaa headquarters whenever somebody says it out loud but it rarely happens because i always leave off a letter i'm always like bwa oh yeah no the alarm is gathering dust but it's there so I was interested in what does it take to become one of these guys? Like I, I said to John at our production meeting, I was like, it can't be that hard, can it? Then I go on their website and it apparently is. You have to have <laughs> 10 years on a beat writer and then you can get voting rights. But you have to be a member for 10 years first. And I was just like, you know what? I ain't doing all that. I was hoping that maybe the podcast would get me uh, a leg into the competition, but no, it's not. 
Well, I mean, I think the problem is that we, we don't cover a beat, right? Like, even if we do this for 10 years, be like, hey, you know, episode whatever. And like, oh, well, well, what team were you covering? Fuck, 10 years down the drain. We're like, mostly Yankees and Mets. They're like, mm, no, we have enough of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the entire concentration of the BBWAA is in the Northeast, right? So a big problem with this is like, and John pointed out, would you put it a, a lifetime appointment, sort of like the Supreme Court? It's like a Supreme Court justice, except that they're more mysterious. Like, who the fuck are these people? You notice, like, we tried going to the website, and when they look up, like, you know, members, it was kind of a short-ish list. And we're like, what the fuck? And apparently it's like, oh, well, these are the members who choose to have their own profile pages. So there's who knows how many writers just, like, existing in the darkness, like, you know, emerging into the sunlight once a year to fill out their ballot and then going back into their hole. And they are like, their publication is like the fucking Xerox communist newsletter that some nut is standing on a soapbox in the corner of New York City, like just screaming about. And he's like, and now for sports. And then his beat writer. Not for nothing. When you look at the list, there are some pretty like obscure publications. It's like, really? I'm pretty sure Breaking Balls has a bigger following than some of these. Like, get us on that committee, bro. Come on. And the problem with that is the same thing with problem with any lifetime appointment is that you have people and and fortunately I don't think there's like a a number of like we can only have X amount of members at a time. I don't think that's how it is, but I'm not really sure. I was just going to ask, do you have to retire from the uh, BBWAA? Um, (laughs) There's got to be a shorter way to say it, but it's already an acronym. Like what do we do? Anyway. But seriously, when you're done with your professional baseball writing career, do you have to retire? Or is it that much of an appointment where it's like, oh, you you already put in the time? I wonder how much of a lifetime appointment is it actually? I don't know. I feel like you probably have to be a writer. You can't like retire from the publication and not be going to games and shit anymore and still get a vote. Just like getting it mailed to you at the retirement home and like some aide like helping you check the boxes. Fraud. Oh, I, I liked Barry Bonds, and oh, I liked Clemens, too. Just unintentionally, suddenly they're voting for all PED guys. I fucking apply for a job at the BBWAA retirement home just so I could fill out all these ballots. Oh, that's it. You know what? My roommate works in assisted living. This is how we're going to get change to happen, <laughs> Emily. I'm going to get it on the ground floor. And obviously, I'm not implying that fans should vote. Because we now we have the same problem with this vote that we do with the end-of-season awards, right? That it's all arbitrary and it's up to the individual voter because it's the same team of people voting. BBWAA does the awards and they do the Hall of Fame. Again, there's no rubric for this. So I find it funny and and I I get why it's important for these guys to be active in the baseball community. They should be going to games. It's It's a guarantee that you know they're watching and paying attention. Though there is definitely bias among writers because we're all inherently biased. And just because someone covers baseball and watches it doesn't mean that their opinions are very good. I mean, how many writers have people disagreed with literally at every turn? Why do they, their their voice is the end all be all and they are the ones who are getting to decide who are the legends of the game and who aren't. And I think that's a little weird. I don't really have the answer for who should decide, but I think it's odd that they get the final say. Right. And I, I think it's kind of two tiered, you know, because in the, fir- in the first place, we've talked about on this show how awards don't mean shit. And it's the same, just, just like you said, it's the same writers getting people into the Hall of Fame. So what does that say for the Hall of Fame, right? And then, you know, going into, you know, what, what do you do? You make a rubric or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think it gets a little, it get a little philosophical on you here. Like, 
what's the point of the Hall of Fame? You know, you're denying these parts of baseball that happened and entertained people. And it's it's a weird denying thing. You know, it's like if you want to make some moral judgment on, okay, you know, PEDs are wrong. Is that really the place for it, though? You know what I'm saying? Like, and I get the argument. It's like, oh, well, they didn't do it right. It's like, yeah, but they did. I mean, even if you want to, like, give them a separate wing, you want to add the asterisks or something. But it's literally revisionist history to not have them in there. It's I a museum. The, that's what I'm saying. It's a museum. And any any museum worth its salt is supposed to show the past as it happened, for better and for worse, right? And if you want to say that PEDs are for worse, okay, then frame it in that way. But to not let them in at all and to not acknowledge that these things happened. And I mean, in some ways, like, you know, you and I, you know, our childhood was in the 90s and then, you know, growing up into the 2000s. Isn't that kind of insulting in a way? Like, that's the baseball that we grew up on. And it's like, if you want to say that, okay, you know, it has its issues, I'm not going to argue against that because it certainly did. But you're kind of robbing us of that, of, of celebrating that. You know what I'm saying? Especially since MLB all but encouraged it. They knew it was going on. Right. The only reason that they started cracking down on it, I mean, that is heavy quotes, cracking down because they didn't even really, but is because Congress stuck its nose where it didn't belong. It inexplicably said, hey, something's going on here. They're hitting a lot of home runs. So Selig and his fucking crony at the time, Manfred, they were happy to let these guys use, let them save the game because the shutdown almost fucking torpedoed the sport in 1994. PEDs brought it back from the dead, the home run race, all of it. Bonds, everything over the course of that like decade of time. So we already have, forget about the fact that Piazza and Ivan Rodriguez are Hall of Famers. And Bagwell, all three known PED users were named in the same fucking reports as everyone else that's now in question and and on the verge of not getting in. So you have them in and Selig is in the Hall of Fame. I don't know who votes him in because they're obviously not on the ballot. So I would assume it's still the BBWAA. I don't even know. But that fucking guy is in the Hall of Fame. So are we really going to sit here and, and... clutch our pearls and feign upset about the idea of Bonds, Clemens, Sheffield, uh, Manny Ramirez, all these guys who belong there. We're going to pretend like we care and what they did is wrong and they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, even though we know these other guys are already in there. And this guy who fucking was the head of the organization at the time that all this was going down and all but celebrated it. And the only reason he then all of a sudden didn't like it and turned on the players was because Congress got involved. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, I, I, yeah, this is really bad. Whoa, it's PEDs. Uh. So he's in there. All these, What's the fucking deal, everybody? Why are we going to fucking pretend? You summed it up perfectly in that it's a fucking museum. And it's not a museum's job to tell the public what to think. It's a museum's job to present the facts as they happen and allow the public to come to their own conclusions. And MLB doesn't seem willing to do that. And yeah, I, I don't want to go into repeats here, but exactly what you said. They were happy to reap the benefits at the time. And now they are apparently are happy to clutch their pearls and act like they didn't know and know we're better than that. Get the fuck out of here. You just, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm definitely a stickler. I know you are too, you know, just for history happened. You know, if you don't like it, well, then learn from it. But how the fuck are we supposed to learn from it if you hide it? And it was such a part of the game even though it was quote-unquote illegal, what is something that I think should keep people out of this museum? Because at the end of the day, it is 
glorifying them. Whoever is in the Hall of Fame on a plaque, it's a glorification. So I understand why people wouldn't like it. But like you said, put an asterisk, put them in their own wing, yeah. put it on their plaque. They put fucking paragraphs on these plaques, everybody. I don't know if anyone's ever seen them, but it's literally an entire paragraph. It's not just a quick blip. So there's enough room on there. A weird thing that people don't mind is like they quote unquote off the field stuff where shilling should be in. But it's like shilling literally was calling for like the death of people that are different from him. And, you know, there are these guys who are womanizers and 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 uh, abusive alcoholics that are in the Hall of Fame and, and uh, domestic abusers. That somehow isn't disqualifying them. PEDs is where we're drawing the line morally. And shilling, isn't it funny? You remember when we were up there. His bloody sock is in the Hall of Fame, but he is not allowed in. Explain that to me. And to be honest, I think that that's all he needs. It's like, to me personally, it is a museum, but I think that because of the glorification of having your name on a plaque, there's no way to put in, oh, and he was a fucking domestic abuser or he was a psychopath because it wasn't part of the game like PEDs. That was an entire era. So it's like you could put that in there. Whereas. Right. If someone is a fucking menace to society, they should not be memorialized, basically, for lack of a better term, in the Hall of Fame. They shouldn't be, Im I guess the word is immortalized, right? Is that a word? Yeah. yeah, immortalized. So I can understand that angle, but the PEDs, not so much. You lose me when you try to be moral about PEDs and then you're fucking championing a guy like Schilling. And even Bonds, to be honest. I mean, I think Bonds belongs in the Hall of Fame, but I would be okay if the decision to keep him out was based on his issues with domestic violence. I think that's way more of a reason to keep somebody out. Before we get into the voicemails, uh, you guys know that we record this show on Thursday nights. So tomorrow, which is Friday, November 20th, we're excited to announce that we're going to be releasing the next episode of the Breaking Balls Breakdown, starring our own stats guru, Max Greenfield. Uh, this episode is going to be about FIP, fielding independent pitching, and we're releasing it tomorrow so that by the time you're listening to this on Saturday, you can pull it right up. It's going to be, check out our Twitter, it'll be on YouTube, all that good stuff. So with that, we'll get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Danny B. Hi guys, Danny B from Manchester, UK. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed uh, Jerry uh, Drubnicki uh, regaling us with his great baseball memories. A guy needs his own show. Uh, I loved his story about his first ever trip to the old Yankee Stadium, so I thought I'd tell you all about mine. Now, it, it's a story of both sadness and joy. Um, uh, that being the case, it might result in another rant on my part, just to, <clears throat> just to pre-warn you. Uh, so the date was uh, Saturday, April 7th, 2007, Yankees-Orioles. Um, just to give you a bit of context, myself and my then-girlfriend were on a five-day trip to New York to celebrate her birthday. Uh, now, her actual birthday was the day before, the Friday, so we went out on the Friday night and she got more than a little bit drunk. I mean, I was drunk, but she was drunk, drunk. <laughs> she ended up having an argument with her at 4 a.m. with this hotel porter who wouldn't let her into the hotel bar. I mean, I wouldn't mind, but we weren't even staying at that hotel, so... Suffice to say, she was rough as a badger's ass the next day, but we jump on the subway, go to the game, get our seats, I grab a hot dog and a beer, and I'm happy as a pig in shit. She, however, is not happy. She's, she's hungover, grumpy as fuck, and freezing cold. I don't know if New Yorkers remember, but uh, April 2007, there was a freak blizzard that year, and it was actually 
snowing at the game. It was like lightly snowing. Uh, so yeah, that definitely definitely didn't didn't help matters. Um, the game itself, because um, I was pretty excited as it was uh, Key Igawa's major league pitching debut. Uh, now, in my head, we were going to score double-digit runs, Igawa would pitch a perfect game and go on to become a Yankee legend. Anyone who remembers Key Igawa will know that did not happen. He was fucking garbage. Um, he gave up a run in the first and then oh, we actually took the lead, I think, to A-Rod, two-run homer. It was like a sliver of hope, but then Four innings later, Igawa gets yanked. Seven earned runs, seven three down. Now, my other half's incessant whinging had only sort of increased <laughs> as the innings had gone on. So every five minutes, ah, it's too cold, I want to go. Nah, nah. Fucking face like a slap ass. I, I knew, I did, yeah, I knew the longer I subjected it to this torment, the worse the repercussions were going to be. So, during the seventh inning stretch, I said, right, it's not looking good, seven three down. If we don't put any runs on the board in the next half inning, we'll go. So Yanks come up to bat. They don't score. We jump on the train back to the apartment. Little did I know, whilst on the train, uh, Jambi had stepped up in the eighth and hit a three-run homer. We get back to the apartment. She goes to bed for a nap. I turn the TV on to see how the game ended. And there we were, 7-6, one run behind, bases loaded, two outs, bottom of the ninth. A-Rod at the plate. The pressure on A-Rod to come through in this situation, enormous. He knows the whispers. He hears them. He reads the papers. He hears the fans. Obviously, he would love to come through in this situation. The one-two. Driven deep to center field. Going back, Patterson. Still back. See ya! A game-winning walk-off Grand Slam for Alex Rodriguez. And for one Saturday afternoon here in the Bronx, A-Rod answers the critics with a huge, huge Grand Slam to win the game for the Yankees. Uh, yeah, I just turned the TV on in time to see him cock one over the center field wall. Grand Slam walk-off went down to our last out. Yeah. I think I just, I just remember turning around and staring at the back of her head for about 10 minutes, just shaking my head. I don't think I've ever felt pure hatred towards another person before that moment. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, <laughs> that's the end of my, uh, my tragic tale. And in case you're wondering, I'm not with this girl anymore. Um, now, <laughs> I'm not saying that this incident was the reason we split up, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, not saying that either. Anyway, that's me. Sorry for rambling. Uh, cheers. Danny, let me just start by saying that I absolutely remember that home run. And I'll tell you why. A little bit of a coincidence. My birthday was also that weekend, except the day after. My birthday is April 8th, and that was actually my 21st birthday, April 8th, 2007. So I was also a little fishnicket that weekend, but mine didn't happen until Saturday night. And I remember that Grand Slam walk-off because A-Rod hit it on the eve of my birthday. And especially remember it because... If you look at the clip of that game, the Orioles pitcher throws that pitch down the center of the plate to Alex Rodriguez, who was in his prime then. I mean, he won an MVP that year. A-Rod hits that ball to dead center field, probably which at Yankee Stadium, the fence is 408. That cleared the fence, so it probably went like 430 feet, 420 feet. The pitcher, on contact, pointed up to the sky like it was going to be a fucking F8, a pop-up of some kind, <laughs> and it went well over the wall. So I always thought that that was fucking hilarious, and that's 
home run has always lived in my mind because of those two things. And now I will associate your horrible weekend. You know what's funny was my first reaction, you know, when we first listened to the voicemail, your eyes lit up and you were like, I know that game. And in my head, my first reaction is like, you know what, I bet the Mets lost on that day. I just looked it up. Sure enough, we lost to the Braves 5-3 on that day. Not in any remarkable fashion, though. It's okay. At the end of the season, we all lost. A-Rod won an MVP, but I think that was a year that the Red Sox won their second World Series. So well, I, I don't want to talk about the end of 2007 for the Mets, if that's quite all right with you. Probably better than 2006, am I right? No. No. That was Glavin and the Marlins and the collapse in September. Can we not do this right now? I'm sorry. <laughs> Danny B, thank you for your call. That story was awesome. Glad to hear that you're with someone who hopefully likes baseball a little bit more. And thank you for allowing us to go off on a tangent that ended up dunking on John and the old Mets. So much appreciated. Our next call is from Nick. What's up, guys? So can we agree that Steve Cohen is the best account that's ever been had on Twitter? And, you know, the Canone is crazy, right? And what do you think will be the first move of the offseason, Springer or Bauer? Yes, hard agree that Cohen is the best account on Twitter right now. I literally turned on notifications for his tweets today. So my tweet notifications are for Passan, Rosenthal, and Steve Cohen. Second. Yeah, uh, second. He is absolutely the best account to follow on Twitter right now. It's, it's outstanding. My favorite today, did you see him dunking on John Morosi? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Completely shut him down, like, not only as a baseball source, but, like, as a human being. It was devastating. He So for anyone who, who isn't aware, John Morosi had tweeted from, you know, of course, it's source season, so everyone be aware from what you read. Everyone has a source. Everyone's got something to say on Twitter. Tread lightly. Morosi today said that his source told him the Mets were interviewing, um, I forget the name of the guy, for just president of baseball operations, and someone tagged, Steve Cohen and it being like, oh, please make this happen. And Cohen replied to him, this is the first I'm hearing of meeting today. Wrong again. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody is safe. I love it. And to be honest, the first move, I don't think, if anything, I think it'll be Bauer out of Springer or Bauer because Bauer has made it clear he's only looking for a one-year deal. So that is definitely something teams would be a little bit quicker on the draw with. And Springer is going to want a long deal. So... Not for nothing. I mean, I, I guess we can't read too much into Springer's relative silence because Bauer is so active on social media. But Bauer and his agent have been like flirting with the Mets at, like openly for the last two weeks. So if I let me say this in two parts. First off, if I had to guess, yeah, it would be Bauer first thing. Um, and second, I love the phrasing of that question. because I'm, I'm hearing uh, DJ LeMahieu's name get thrown around a lot now, you know, with Cano being out and absolutely no disrespect to DJ. He's an amazing player, obviously. But it's worth mentioning Jeff McNeil's natural position is second base. He's always been a second baseman. Just because we had, as I said, that log jam in the infield, he was playing the outfield and, you know, all over the place. Um, again, no disrespect to DJ. Put McNeil at second base, Uncle Stevie. This is the opening. Let him play his natural position. Enough for this old Mets bullshit playing out of position. No, no, no. Put him at second, please. And obviously I want DJ to come back to the Yankees and, and rumor has it that he wants to come back to the Yankees as well. I really think that DJ's value at this point in time is higher for teams that are in a championship window as we speak. Sure. Now the Mets are only 
a few pieces away. And I know people laugh at that. My friend Ashlyn laughed at that when we were talking about it a few weeks ago. But they really are. It's true, though. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not, you know a, a pitcher or an a outfielder, whatever, like Springer, away. But DJ isn't going to move the needle for them. So no. there's no sense in bringing on a 32-year-old DJ who's looking for a four- or five-year deal is what we're hearing. So what's the incentive? The Mets are going to replace Cano a 39-year-old with a 32-year-old who is only helpful to a team. And I guess, to be fair, the Mets do have a really potent lineup. They were one of the better lineups last year in 2020. So maybe I am underselling them a little bit, but I just don't see DJ being a move for the Mets because what is he going to do for the Mets that they don't already have right now? And like John said, no disrespect to DJ, but he's not going to be the missing piece for them. Because, yeah, we need the right-handed bat, and he's a fantastic one, but we need it in center field. We need, like, a true center fielder, you know? Because I, I don't want Brandon Nimmo to be the guy. Brandon Nimmo should be the guy that gets on base and he could fill in, he's scrappy, all that. We need a stud center fielder. That's, you know, and again, I, I've said it three times now. No disrespect to DJ, but that's why Springer is just a better fit. Nick, thank you so much for your call. And our next call is from Andrew from Hell's Kitchen. Andrew from Hell's Kitchen. Uh, first of all, Yankee fans really got to stop with this whole sign DJ or we ride because there's like a fuck ton of different avenues the Yankees could go. You know, do they sign? And it really depends on if they're committed to uh, Glaber at short or second or whatever. You know, do they sign Simmons? Do they sign DJ? Where's Glaber going to play? Do they trade Glaber out of nowhere, although I don't think that's going to happen, but who the hell knows. And uh, another thing, I usually mention this towards like the end of the offseason, but I saw this on Twitter recently. A lot of people have been bringing up who the Yankees should sign, or a few people have been bringing up who the Yankees should sign as like the, you know, the infielder who plays a bunch of positions and gets, you know, 450 plate appearances, kind of like what uh, DJ was brought here to do when we had Glaber, Didi, Voight, and Geo, and kind of like McNeil would be for the Mets if the Mets infield was ever deep. And, uh, you know, last year I wanted Brock Holt, uh, even though he struggled in 60 games. He had two above-average offensive seasons before last year, and he could play second and short. Uh, a guy that I've heard mentioned is uh, Tommy LaStella by Gary Sanchez RBW account. And uh, I think he might want to start somewhere, but that's definitely an option to explore. And uh, I'm going to give you two names that no one's really talking about. One of them is Azdrubal Cabrera, who you guys mentioned last week. He can play a bunch of positions, basically the entire infield other than short. And um, uh, another guy I want to mention is someone who you guys uh, probably forgot existed. Played for a central team last year. He was in the AL East for like five years, like going back to like 2013 before he got traded away from the AL East. And I'm going to give you a second to guess who it is. If you guessed Jonathan Scope, which I don't think you did, but who knows, uh, you were correct. And uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on potentially, you know, bringing in an infielder that can play multiple positions? That's essentially like the 10th starter, you know, you know, so that you can have like so that the Yankees could like do load management properly without, you know, freaking starting Tyler Wade or Tyro Estrada. 
And also that guy would be like, you know, injury insurance in case someone gets hurt. So, yeah, what are your thoughts? To be honest, I I don't see the Yankees passing on LeMahieu to bring in someone like, well, first of all, Cabrera. He's 35 years old, so he's not playing any fucking middle infield position for the Yankees who are trying to win a World Series. That was the only thing I had to add to this was, yeah, stay away from Esdrubal as someone that got off that train recently. Yeah, so, and yeah, I know. He was on the Nationals when they won, but I just... I don't see him really fitting into the puzzle here. I mean, the Yankees ha- are known for like getting aging players, so I don't really think he's the move. Yeah, for to literally replace LeMahieu, no. And Simmons would be great. He's obviously one of the greatest fielders of, of greatest fielding shortstops of all time. But is his is he really going to, I mean, actually, yes, he will command less than DJ, but the Yankees already know that DJ fits really well into this formula that he's comfortable at Yankee Stadium, he swings great for Yankee Stadium, that he's comfortable in the lineup. So I don't really see them fucking with that to save $5 million or so. And obviously this is an arbitrary number I'm just pulling out of anywhere, but I can only imagine it would be to save some years or, or money on the contract. And why do that? They just spent a shitload of money and committed a shitload of years to Garrett Cole because they're ready to win. So I don't see them trying to pinch pennies or, you know, maybe shave a year or two off of someone's contract and letting LeMahieu walk. Yeah, as an impartial non-Yankee fan observer, I would definitely be shocked if he's not a Yankee next year. But I will say, I agree with John wholeheartedly, but I will say that I was wrong uh, about LeMahieu signing. I was not happy when they first made that signing because I wanted Machado and I knew that signing LeMahieu meant that he wasn't gonna, Machado wasn't going to be coming to the Yankees. So I was a little miffed by that. And it made me dislike the signing. Obviously, I was wrong. Cashman and company knew what they were talking about. LeMayu has been unreal since he's come here. So if they decide to pass on DJ, will I be upset? Yeah. But I'm learning to trust the process more that I was upset when they first signed him and I couldn't have been more wrong. So if they feel that moving on from him is something that is worth it for them and they can still win, then who am I to to tell them that they're wrong? Because I've been wrong and they've been right way more than I've been right and they've been wrong. Andrew, thank you so much for your call. And our last call is from Quinn. Hey, what's up? It's Quinn. Right now, I am annoyed that one of the first Hall of Fame ballots that was publicly revealed only had Schilling and Vizquel, but that seems on par with everything else that's happened this year, and I don't understand why the writers love Vizquel so much. Also, I think Steve Cohen gets better at Twitter every week. Immediately jumping on to say that Cano's salary would be spent on other players was great. And my favorite was where he suggested that they make Bobby Bonilla Day an annual tradition where they give him an oversized check and drive a lap around the field. Quinn, I'm so glad that you got this call in right before we started recording because Cohen tweeted that right before we started and John and I were fucking cracking up. I would absolutely attend Bobby Bonilla Day every single year just to see the presentation of the giant check every year. Can I just say, first off, I, I love the exaggeration of saying that the ballot with just Schilling and Vizquel is as bad as 2020 in the aggregate. That's fucking funny, man. Um, but also, yeah, what better way to stick it like quietly and like in a dignified manner, stick it to the previous regime 
of Mets ownership than by just going all out and celebrating Bobby Bonilla when we know that Steve Cohen has the change to just fucking pay him off and make him go away forever. Like, no, have fun with it. This source of misery for Mets fans for how many fucking years now? Just embrace it. Let's go with it. Let's have fun with it. I love it. Cohen just found $1.19 million in his fucking winter coat when he blew, <laughs> took it out of the closet. People like us, we find like $5 bills after the long summer. And now he's like, oh my God, here's where this $1.1 yeah, $1. $1 million tweets like, oh, it was a real good day today. Just found a million dollars in my coat pocket. Everything's coming up Stevie today. And I don't understand the obsession with Vizquel either. Yeah, he was a great shortstop, but was he good enough to overcome his fucking atrocious bat? Are we going to ignore that? Is he, basically what it boils down to, is he Brooks Robinson level defense? Because Robinson was fucking horrible at the plate, but he is like the the gold standard for uh, corner infielders, right? That he got into the hall because of how great he was on defense. Is Vizquel really that? Or are we all, not we, are people who are obsessed with him just wrapped up in the highlights? And is that enough to get in the Hall of Fame? Are, are they like jonesing for another Brooks Robinson? It's like, oh, it's been too long. You know, let's 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 uh, enshrine this defensive ability while we still can. I, I don't know. He, I, I don't think he should get in. That about wraps it up for Breaking Balls this week. Before we get into our thank yous, be sure to check out the Breaking Balls breakdown episode that will be on our YouTube page as well as our Twitter. You can find us there at BreakBallsPod. We want to thank all of our listeners. You guys are amazing. And of course, our callers. Anyone else wants to get in on the fun, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. And we want to thank our amazing producer and engineer, DJ Bingington. You can find him on Twitter as well, at DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And we will catch you guys next week. Misdemeanor on the floor, pretty boy, here I come. Pumps in the bump, make you want to hurt something. I can take your man, I don't have to sex something.